All right, tonight we're going to continue in Exodus 22. We had business meeting last week, so we weren't we weren't able to finish this. We're going to finish Exodus 22, which is kind of a long chapter, so I'm going to have to go pretty quick to get it done. If you weren't here, just a quick recap. Uh, Exodus 21, 22, 23, and 24 are what's called the Book of the Covenant. That's what the, those chapters are called together. And basically, it's just a lot of different case laws based on the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments were given in chapter 20 in Mount Sinai. God called Moses up to the mountain, and then Moses, God began to speak to Moses and telling him kind of what we might call case law. Uh, and it's just uh, principles of application, how Israel is to apply these laws. Now, as we walk through these laws, different sections, different scenarios, different things going on, it's not intended to be an exhaustive list of every single situation that could possibly come up. It's really just giving them some, some specific cases to be able to apply principles of application to help Israel know how to live toward one another and toward God under the covenant of God. And it's to help them understand what justice looks like. When we left off, we left off in Exodus 22:15, And through that section, uh, verses 1 through 15, we talked about personal property laws. We talked about liability laws. You know, if you, if you borrow something from someone, you're responsible for that, for what you borrow. If someone gives you property for safekeeping, you're responsible to take care of it. And the restitution, if something happens to it, we talked about all those laws up there in, in verses one through 15. And we also saw um, just an overarching truth that God holds people responsible when through their actions or through their negligence or even if it's pure accident, if you, are, if you cause harm to another person or another person's property, uh, you are responsible and are to make restitution. We saw that in some of the laws that we walked through uh, about Israel. You remember where he said, if your ox gets loose, and it tramples somebody else's field, you have to give them part of your, your crop. And if you're fire, if you had a fire and it got loose and it burned up somebody's field, you had to make restitution. So even if it's accidental or from negligence, um, it's legal liability. And, and you can see as we walk through a lot of these laws in the Book of the Covenant here, um, a lot of our modern justice system is based on a lot of these laws from, from God's law. And so the second half of chapter 22, we ended in verse 15, we're going to start in verse 16, it deals with laws that really at their heart are, are matters of human dignity and how we treat others, how we love others, and how we honor God. Now there's a whole lot here, so in order to get through it, I'm getting through chapter 22 today. All right, I'm about tired of being in the book of the covenant. I'm ready to, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. These are not these are not easy to study and to learn and to make sure I understand what they're saying and to be able to teach them to you. So we're going to move pretty quickly, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, as I've told you before, in some of the harder sections of Exodus, there are some these are, some of these are hard to apply, and I'm sure there's going to be questions that you might have as we discuss them that I'm not able to answer. And so just be prepared for I don't know as an answer because there's going to be a lot that I don't know. So I'm excited to say the first law we're going to talk about in verse 16, premarital sex. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be super fun. Oh, I got to put this back over here. Okay, now it'll work. All right. Verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him as a wife, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, quickly, this law is it's applied basically when, when a man and woman have premarital sex without having made the proper betrothal and marriage arrangements. This is not a case of, in this section, it's not a case of rape. Rape is dealt with in Deuteronomy 22. And uh, in some instances, you get the death penalty for that. Um, Exodus 22:16 is about seduction and circumventing 
the proper channels for being married. So this law really is, some people use this law and they use it as a, a hammer to say the Old Testament law is not unfair. Look at the, the bride is just property and she's traded. This law was for the woman's protection. It protects her and her family from men who would, you know, like to have sex without marriage or without the constraints of, uh, of godly marriage or betrothal or family, you know, interacting with father and mother. This is about, this is about about um, uh, uh, um, not going through the proper channels to be married before God and before Israel uh, and and doing the deed. So the bride price is referenced here. That was the formal arrangement for marriage. And it took into account the interests of the, the bride-to-be, of course, but also her family. So to pay a bride price in ancient Israel... Um, was to basically enter into negotiations with this family, with the bride and her family, and it was it involved a formal betrothal period. So you don't just go and say, here's your money, let's get married. There was a betrothal period that, that lasted for so long. And this, this law was a requirement that forced two people that were in love or, uh, you know, a, a sleazebag man that was seeking to seduce a woman just for sex and then leave, it forced them to understand that it's not going to work this way. Okay, so there's going to be repercussions if this happens. Um, one way or another in Israel, according to God's law, marriage is going to be honored among God's people. And if you didn't honor it among God's people, if you were a man who was seeking just to take advantage and then move on to the next conquest, it would cost you and it would cost you dearly. So a man couldn't, in this case, love her and leave her. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't allowed to sleep with her and dishonor her and dishonor her family without any repercussions. Even, even if she was a willing participant, what we're talking about here is kind of seduction. Uh, so even if he was like a, a modern day Romeo or something and he just wooed her into agreeing, it, it doesn't work that way. For this law to be understood properly, God is telling them that the act of sex doesn't establish marriage as if it were that easy. You know, I don't have to talk to the father. I don't have to be betrothed. I don't have to be engaged. I don't have to go through the proper channels to be married in the sense of being married before God and married before the people, the elders of Israel. And, you know, um, they had to be married. They had to be married properly. He had to woo her the right way, court her the right way. They had to be married properly and it included having the father's blessing. So after this deed was done, if you had two star-crossed lovers that were just not willing to wait, not willing to, and they were off, you know, doing their thing, or you had, you know, some sleazy guy that 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 wooed some naive lady into in, into this, the father could still refuse. He could still refuse to give his daughter to that man as a wife. Even after the fact, though, even after the deed is done, even after it's known, if the father refused to allow them to marry, the man would still have to pay the bride price. Um, it's ensured that the family authority couldn't be gotten around by just some guy, uh, even, with, even with her support, if, if she were to give it. The law, this law basically was designed to promote godly patterns of courtship, marriage, and then sex in that order. Okay? Questions, comments? It couldn't be circumvented by, like I said, two, two star-crossed lovers, young people refused to wait. They had to be married properly before God, and it protected not only the woman, but also her family from, you know, some sleazy Romeo-type guy who wanted to seduce her for nefarious purposes. Questions? Yes. It's not a question, but it's a comment. Okay. Back just before I retired, there was a young man who came to me one morning, and we, we shared our spiritual experience for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And he said, Gary, I got something to share with you. And I said, well, what's that? I'll call him Phil and his girlfriend named Anne. So he said, you know, my girlfriend and I have been... Uh, staying at each other's house and taking turns back and forth, you know. Sure. And he said, you know, the other night on Sunday night at church, we were having a discussion similar to this mm -hmm. 
and uh, it was a, a life group where they were all peers. Sure. And uh, he said, you know, my, my girlfriend and I were heavily convicted. And it's a power of God's word sure to enough. you to do the right thing. So Phil and this girl made this fact that they'd have no more sex until they got married. And both stayed at their separate places. And I thought that was a powerful rendition of what God means for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. God brings conviction for sure. And and also this is this is this is a case where God is teaching Israel how to apply the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. So it's not when you say thou shalt not commit adultery, we walked through that law and we talked about all the iterations of that in the New Testament, you know, fornication, all, all those things. We talked about that. But here's a case where it, it's pretty much if you have this, you have this interrelationship that's complicated and, you know, there, there's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be the, the back alley Romeo that, that's wooing, you know, and, and there's always going to be different ways where, you know, things happen, they're in love, they're, oh, but, you know, there are always these complications, always these circumstances. So he takes this, 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 this case and he says, here's how you apply the law. So if this happens, then this needs to happen. And he shows them what justice looks like in the midst of this. So it's basically an application of the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yes? How did they figure the bride price? I don't know. <laughs> How do they figure the bride price? I'm sure it was a. I, I, I'm guessing, so I have no idea. But I'm just guessing. I'm sure it was an established, understood thing among among Israel. So I don't know. I don't know that for sure. I have no idea. But I would think it would be known. I, I really don't know. So is it the same for all? Same what? Same price. Same bride price. I don't know. I told you, I'm not going to know a lot here. I don't know. It was, I do know, so there's a lot of, when you, when you read and study these passages, this is why it was so, these are so difficult, because you read some theological scholar from a seminary somewhere that says, oh, well, this is this, this. And then a, a good researcher, if you want to know truth and make sure that you're right and that you're able to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, you have to go back and look for source documents, not just not just this guy at Southern Seminary said this. You know, I want to see some ancient evidence of where this is found, and there's just not a whole lot that I could I could find. So, I, if you know, if I couldn't find anything about the bride price, what it was, I'm sure somebody knows. Uh, I couldn't find whether you know a, a, a more wealthy family had a higher one or a poor family had a lower. I don't know. I mean, it could be. I just don't know. I just don't know. But I do know that the bride price, the it was part of the official, um, I don't want to say ceremony, but the official practice to enter into the covenant of marriage, which began with a betrothal process, and the betrothed daughter was seen as a daughter in the in the man's family. So we talked about that last time. If if uh, a son betroths himself to a, a, a prospective wife, she is immediately seen as part of the family, not just girlfriend, not just acquaintance. She is immediately part of the family. They go through the betrothal process. Then they're married formally before the elders of Israel and before God in a ceremony and, and their husband and wife. So that's that's about all I, all I can say. The, the, the reality of this, the application of this and the purpose of it is to show them how Marriage is not to be circumvented uh, by acts of sleazy guys or acts of two young people that are just in love and want to hurry up and, and that you have to go through. You have to go through the process of being married uh, formally before God. Okay? All right. Any other questions? Sweet. Now we talk about death penalty cases. <laughs> Capital crimes. What you're going to see in these three, which at first glance are very different, but all three are crimes that degrade humanity, degrade the image of God, and dishonor God. So it says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. 
Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So here are three capital crimes, all have the death penalty attached to them. And they're different, of course, but they all have that in common. They degrade the image of God. They dishonor the glory of God. And the first command is to remove those who are practicing sorcery among the people. They were not to be, it says here, allowed to live. And it says sorceress in Exodus 22. But later in Leviticus, you see men are involved in this too. In Leviticus 20, 27, it says a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist must be put to death. They are to be stoned. Their blood is on their own hands. So it says sorceress in this deal, but we were we, in God's law, we're told it's anyone who is practicing sorcery. Um, what is sorcery? It's like you think you're walking around with like a Mickey Mouse Fantasia hat on. Like what is what is sorcery in the ancient world? What what would they do? Anybody know? It's okay if you don't, just guess. Worshiping a pagan god. They would worship a pagan god for sure. And witchcraft. Witchcraft, occultism, spiritism. Um, the reality is there was a lot of different things in the Old Testament that were attached to the word sorcery. So there's a lot of different things you could do that would be labeled sorcery. But ultimately, it's a wide range of occult practices. Um, it, it included like fortune telling, communicating with the dead, uh, ritual stuff, casting spells to bring a desired outcome. And actually, this, this command is more specific in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall be found among you, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things, look at it, is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these things, abominations, because of these abominations, the Lord, your God, is driving them out before you, the Canaanites, those in the land. So really, this was not just an act of doing occultism, uh, although it was that. It was a form of idolatry. It was, it was refusing to submit to the Lord in faith and it was, it was an attempt to either coerce the Lord or know the Lord's will or manipulate God or the spirits through spells and chants and rituals and occult practices. And basically, it is an attack on the sovereignty of God, on the, the lordship of God. It was somewhat, we might call them a witch doctor, you know. They rattle some bones and they tell a spell and they, they say a chant and it's supposed to make all your crops grow right. You know, that's a, that's a way to coerce uh, either false and fake gods and spirits or to coerce the true God. Uh, to do what you want him to do. It is an attack on God. They were told to trust in the Lord and he will not be manipulated through sorcery or occultism or spells or any spiritual method that's going to be employed to try to curry his favor or get something from him. That's what sorcery entails in this. Do we still do that kind of stuff today? Yeah? Like what? Huh? Palm reading, telling your future. Horoscopes. Horoscopes. I worked with someone in the Wiccan. Yeah, you work with a Wiccan? Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, it's interesting. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Ouija board? Ouija board? Yeah, yeah. Just this weekend, there was a Satan convention in Austin. Uh, yeah, a Satan convention, huh? Wow. Yeah. Right, that's that's something. Something. So ultimately, and it's we, we're talking about a lot of occult practices that are still practiced today, and, uh, and all those are included for sure. But ultimately, this is a um, uh, a command against the use of any spiritual force, whether it's real or imaginary to help people fulfill their own desires. 
It is a repudiation of God's control, God's provision, God's goodness. It's a repudiation of that because instead of praying to the Lord, instead of trusting the Lord, you're trying to get your own way through a back channel of spiritual demonic forces or, or, or whatever. And so it was the, the one practicing medium, sorcery, necromancy, prayers for the dead, all those kind of things, they were to be put to death in Israel. Now, Death penalty is kind of a steep penalty, right? Pretty steep penalty. You think it's a little overkill? When we realize what sin is against God, honestly, we all deserve the death penalty. Now, remember the laws, right? Three types of laws. What are they? Moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. Moral law is binding on all people, all times, all cultures, all places. Civil law, which includes some of these punitive measures, the death penalty, stoning to death, some of those things uh, for, some of these, uh, for some of these crimes. Um, it was for national Israel under the theocracy of God. Uh, it includes all kinds of things that we take the general equity from, but we don't necessarily put it into place. And we have the ceremonial law that has been abrogated in Christ who fulfilled, we're clean before God, we don't have to wash wait seven days before we enter sacrifice an animal we don't have to we can eat shellfish praise god and bacon and all those kind of things <laughs> so those are ceremonial laws done away with in christ so remember those three types of laws so you still may have a moral law that is a moral law that stands forever but in israel in exodus leviticus deuteronomy the punishment in national israel under the theocracy might be a civil law that is not necessarily to to do so would break the law of the land that we live under now so we we those are um uh, not abrogated but we use the general equity of those laws remember that very important yes so this is a moral law and only applied to israel so what did they do with those around them not in israel that practice these who? The Israelites. They have a responsibility to the, the people around them who, who were. Oh, you mean like what did Israel do about the Canaanites practicing yeah. sorcery? They would call them to repent. I mean, they wouldn't. So remember, when we talked about, when we, when we began the section on the law in Exodus, we talked about the death penalty. And we're going to see it a bunch of times, stoned to death, devoted to destruction. We're going to see a lot of different things that curry the death penalty. But you need to remember when we, when we talked way back in Genesis uh, 9 that the, God's decree of the death penalty was not for an individual who had been wrong to go take revenge and assert the death penalty. It was to it was to bring them before the legitimate government, the elders of Israel. It was to be decided and carried out by the community of Israel. So even if even if we were talking about, oh, they should get the death penalty today, it would be the, the magistrate that would have to impose that. They bear the sword. It tells us in Peter and Paul, they bear the sword of God's justice. So it, even if you were to say, if you find someone practicing wickedness or necromancy or whatever, they deserve the death penalty, whatever, it wouldn't be you as an individual who could make that happen. So an Israelite wouldn't just run off into Canaan and say, okay, I'm gonna kill all these people because they're practicing necromancy. It was a law for Israel at the time, and they would call other nations to repent, to turn to God, to turn to the God of Israel. Okay? Next, bestiality. Yay! You, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Pretty simple, right? Now, obviously, it's a breach of God's command for sexual intercourse. One man, one woman, married before God, married for life. But it also degrades and dishonors the image of God in man. How does it do that? Don't be gross. Just tell me how it degrades the image of God in man. To disobedience. It is disobedience. It is a dis disobedience. But it lowers us to the point of an animal. Yeah, it lowers those who are the image of God, the crowning jewel of creation, to just a debaucherous act with an animal seemingly making us animals. Now, normal folks would just say, I mean, that's just common sense. Like, why would you have to spell that out to Israel? Uh, there are some people that maintain that this was actually done, not in Israel, but it was actually done... Um, 
as worship to Baal in, in, in the Canaanites. Um, I, I can't substantiate that. But the fact that it was done among the Canaanites is incontrovertible because in Leviticus chapter 18, it says you are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. You are not to have sexual intercourse with an animal defiling yourself with it or a woman is not to present herself to an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. And then he says, do not defile yourselves by any of these practices for the nations I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. So how it was happening and why it was happening among the Canaanites, I'm not quite sure, but it was happening. So this was a call for Israel to be not only keep the commandment for not committing adultery, but to use the gift of sex in the context that God had given it, one man, one woman, for life, in marriage. Um, but it, so it broke that command for sexuality, but it also defiled the image of God. He said, don't defile yourself by doing these things. And it also dishonors God and the created order. And besides all that, it's just gross, okay? So this this was something that was not to be done it was something that was defiling of the the created order and it was defiling of god's people as the image of god is there any questions on this please send them. okay the last capital crime in this says whoever sacrifices to any god other than the lord alone shall be devoted to destruction this is just blatant uh, idolatry was already forbidden in the command, right? You will have no other gods before me sacrificing to another god other than Yahweh. This was a capital crime. You'd be devoted to destruction um, because it was rebellion against God. Israel was told, as we saw in the commandments, not to put any other gods before him. But here it, it, says, it, it says you're not even to do the act of offering an animal. So you're not even to offer an animal to another God, even though you don't, you know, I don't really believe that, but you know, it can't hurt. I saw a Fred Sanford episode one time where he had a big chain and he had a, he had a star of David and a cross and a little Muslim thing. And he had all this stuff and uh, they were getting on an airplane. Lamont said, what do you got all that for? You're a Baptist. He said, well, it can't hurt. You know, so he's saying, even in situations where you're going to be, even if you don't believe it, you are not to sacrifice an animal. You're not to sacrifice an animal to any other God other than Yahweh. You're not to worship, engage in worship, in any act of worship to any other God other than Yahweh. Don't even do the act. There will be no other worship or the appearance of worship to other gods. Now that's pretty self-explanatory law. Is any questions, comments on that one? It's pretty basic. Yes. Golden calf. Why didn't why didn't they all get zapped? Well, three thousand of them got zapped. He asked why the golden calf is going to come up in Exodus thirty-three. It's actually, so there's a long period where God has given Moses all this these commands and all these things on Mount Sinai, uh, and then Moses goes down the mountain and finds them worshiping a golden calf. In reality, it wasn't that long a time before these were given that they were already worshiping a calf. Uh, and yeah, they they were they were worshiping another god. And I, I am I thinking right? Was it three thousand that died that day because uh, God God struck them dead? Three thousand. Yeah, it's. I mean, you're going to see that over and over again. You're going to see Israel giving God giving them law, God giving them command, them agreeing to the covenant, and then breaking it. And we've seen it all the way up until, all the way through the wilderness up to this point. They're going to go 40 more years in the wilderness, but up to this point, God, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, through the Red Sea, miracle bread from heaven. And at every point, they were, oh, you're going to left us out here to die. Send us back to Egypt. You know, they were just sinners. They were sinners. And we're pretty hard on Israel, but we are the same way. I mean, we're the same way. We're very fickle people. I'm a very fickle person. What have you done for me lately, God? Yes. I was going to say, is this where the, you know, eating meat sacrifice to idols kind of contention came in? I don't know. It might be. It might be. So in the New Testament, there's a, there's a big contention of you, you, you cannot eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul takes it up in two or three of the letters that he writes 
Uh, and it could be that this is the this is one of the commands that was used to substantiate the fact that you defile yourself before God if you eat all pretty much all meat markets in the ancient world were meat that was left over from some sacrifice in some temple to some fake god somewhere and so you'd go to the market to buy meat and chances were really good that you were getting meat that had been sacrificed to an idol and there were contingents of people that were strict law observers that say you were defiling yourself and you would be unclean before God. I'm not sure, but it would make sense. It would make sense if it came at least in some part from this law. Any others? Oh, we certainly ain't going to get done. I'm going to go faster. <laughs> Alright, in the next section, he talks about what happens when you fail to love your neighbor. And he starts with how you are, how Israel is to treat the most vulnerable people among them. It says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, orphan. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So these three groups, the, the foreigner, the stranger, the sojourner among them, the widow and the orphan were the three most easily mistreated people groups in the ancient world. They had the least protections from society. They had the least means to provide for themselves. And in most ancient cultures, the laws left them unprotected. And what we see here is that God takes the treatment of the vulnerable and the poor and the, the, um, the marginalized very, very seriously. So he starts with the stranger, the alien, the non-Israelite, the, the foreigner, uh, people from other nations that lived among Israel. And there were some that came out of Egypt with them. Remember, some of the Egyptians came out with them. He says, the people that live among you that are not Israelites, they were to be treated as the image of God. It's not really hard for us to see how an outsider could be easily taken advantage of, maybe seen as a second-class citizen. Well, we're, we're Israel. You can see it all through the New Testament as the way they thought of Gentiles and all the people that weren't Israel. But even in the, the early society of Israel, in the, in the Promised Land and on the way to the Promised Land, you can see how a foreigner would be taken advantage of, not, not be seen as a full with the full privileges of citizenship. Later uh, in Leviticus 19, God is going to say, you must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Notice, so if you go back to the Exodus passage, it says don't mistreat them. But when he says don't mistreat them, it's not just be kind and be nice. and be. He says to love them as yourself. Why? Hint, it's in the verse. I know they're the image of God. I know they're people. I know they deserve. But why in this verse, in this verse in Leviticus, does he say that you are to love them and treat them as yourself? Because they are foreigners. Yes, yes. Because they are foreigners and because I am Yahweh your God and I brought you out. You see it? He's the Lord. All, all people are created in his image. All People, If you are a human being, you are created in His image. So it doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what nation you're from. doesn't matter what color you are. doesn't matter your background or your circumstances or how poor, how rich, how great, how small. How If you are a human being, you are created in the image of God. And because of that and that alone, you have value. And He says you're to do this because I showed you mercy and love when you were a foreigner in Egypt. So we have a tendency to remember to not remember when God brought us out and to take advantage of people that are um, that are suffering or that are mis this uh, uh, strangers, what we would call strangers, uh, a different color, different color, different status, different, you know, just different in general. We have a tendency to do that. And so he tells Israel, you are not to do that, even though they're not Israelites, you are to treat them as you would your brother, as you would yourself. Uh, there is to be no partiality toward people living among you from other nations. That, that's what he tells us today. What's our application for today? It's an easy one. Same thing. <laughs> Very articulate. Thank you. 
He said, same thing. Same thing. Yes. All people, all people deserve respect. The respect of the image of God. So the, the multi-millionaire that visits your home to just talk to you, whatever, deserves respect. And the homeless man that comes and asks you for a dollar at the gas station deserves respect. The image of God they are created, for sure. And the same was true for orphans and widows. God really takes this very seriously. In verse 22, it says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives, your wives shall become widows and your children shall become fathers. God demonstrated to them and warned them about how seriously he takes this. He says, I will be their avenger. They have no one to avenge them. You know, in this society, you understood there wasn't any welfare. There wasn't any in the ancient world, nothing like that. There was no safety net, no anything. If uh, 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 especially uh, a young or old uh, woman's husband died, she was incumbent upon either begging or going to family to provide for her needs. Uh, orphans were even in a worse position because they were often mistreated, used as slave labor in ancient cultures. I mean, they were there were no protections for them whatsoever. And God says, listen, I'm their avenger. I will kill you, he says. How's that for justice? Not, not if you mistreat the orphan or the widow, you know, you have to pay an ox and you have to pay. Yeah, it's not you have to pay a sum of money for what you have done. No, I will take your life from you and I will make your children orphans. I will make your wife a widow. Now, if you were a person that was, I don't know, internally disposed to mistreat people or to want to take advantage of someone for your own profit, your own gain. Do you think you might be quick to do that if you took this threat seriously? Like that'd be a dangerous game that you're playing right there. Like you, you're literally taking your own life in your hand when you are mistreating the vulnerable and the downcast and those that are that are weaker and have no protections and have you're literally taking your life in your hand and, and they're standing remember they're standing where are they at they're at the, at the foot of mount sinai what's happening on mount sinai right now thunder and lightning and cloud and earthquake and moses is up there talking to them and all we see is just this rumbling and they he told god said don't come to this mountain you come up here i'm gonna kill you don't touch this mountain if you come up here i'm gonna kill you and now i mean he's talking to moses moses is gonna bring this back down but i think i would take that pretty serious the reality is that we we don't, we don't see the mountain smoking anymore. We don't see the, the thunder, the lightning, all those things. But this is just as true. This is just as true today as it was then. God avenges His people. God avenges those who are, who are downcast. You, you, you see it in the New Testament. It says when someone wrongs you, He says, I'm the Lord. I will, I will get vengeance. So it reminds us as people who are sinners who might be disposed to mistreat people or to take advantage. It reminds us that what we are and what we have, we have only because of the grace of God. So we take advantage of someone. We are, we are first denying the grace of God. We're using what we have uh, for our nefarious purposes. But when we, when we take advantage of others, mistreat others because of their circumstances, we're forgetting God could put you in the exact same place tomorrow. And how would you want to be treated then? That's the, that's the ultimate issue with all of these commands. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so God puts an exclamation point on this uh, taking advantage of the misfortune of an image bearer who is loved by God. You are taking your life in your own hands. I will kill you. In fact, he says in Deuteronomy 10, he reiterates this whole command saying, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty awesome God, showing no partiality, taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. He says, You also must love the foreigner since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. So what does this teach us, these, these laws that we've walked through here, these two or three 
What does this teach us about the value of every human life, regardless of the circumstances? We've already said it once or twice, but how does that play out today? Life is valuable. God, we're in God's image. Yeah, we are in God's image and life is valuable. A human being is valuable because, and for no other reason, well, I mean, it might be another reason, but the base reason, no matter what else is the circumstance, because they are a human being. Human beings are created in the image of God. They're loved by God. They are desired by God. And he, he takes it very, very seriously when the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor, the, the downtrodden, the downcast are taken advantage of. And so love your neighbor as yourself becomes a whole... Uh, a lot more serious than we than we think it is when you read commands like this. You see a foreigner, a widow, you mistreat them. I'll kill you. You know, he takes it very, very seriously. And he does so because he because we are the image of God. Verse 25 and 27, Exodus 22, talk about money lending. Yay! If you lend money to any of my people who, with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If, you ever, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. Why? For I am compassionate. Honestly, you're to deal with, with uh, do, you're to do good to others in your lending practices. And notice the reason that he gives. You do these things because I am compassionate. Because God is compassionate to the poor, to the downtrodden. Now, it doesn't say it in this verse, verse 25, but Israel was not allowed to charge interest to fellow Israelites. It says here specifically the poor, as if not to take advantage of the poor, and that's true. God didn't want His people taking advantage of one another in their poverty or their misfortune by charging interest and making profit upon them. Later in Deuteronomy 23, He says, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that, that you may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land uh, you are entering to possess. So make sure you understand this. Charging interest isn't wrong in every and all situation. Even Jesus in the parable of the talents, the lazy servant, he said, you should have put my, you should have put my money in the bankers to, to gain interest, and then I would have it when I had. So God was teaching his people how to love one another and treat each other as brothers and sisters in God's family. And in 26 and 27, he uses the example of a cloak. It says, if a poor person having nothing else but gives their cloak for collateral for a loan, that happens, the lender is to give it back to him every night. Why? That's the only way he can stay warm. Do you think this law applies only if somebody gives me a cloak for collateral? It's just a symbol. So like somebody gives me somebody gives me the house's food for collateral. And I say, Well, I'm just gonna keep it. It's not a cloak. God just said a cloak. You think that's what he meant? No. no, it's a pattern for them to follow. You know, it's any necessary item. You make sure, uh, overarching command here is make sure that the people that you are helping or that you're lending money to, even, even foreigners, you make sure they don't suffer because of the collateral they're putting up. Love one another in your lending practices. Now, Jesus took this a step further. Now, when you read that, especially if you're Matt, he's a banker, yeah. a lot of people complain about the Old Testament law, about how unfair that is. It's too strict. Well, Jesus' command on this law was a whole lot stricter and a whole lot harder. In Luke 6, he says, And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be paid back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. And look at why. Jesus said, because God 
is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. That's a whole lot harder in that Old Testament law, isn't it? He's not saying just don't charge interest. He's saying you lend to them and just don't even expect it back. What do you think, Matt? Can I come in for a loan tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> said to bring my cloak. So the point, though, here is there are going to be times where we talked about it before. We talked about slavery. We talked about how they would they would sell themselves to pay off a debt. We talked about you know it, money lending was was used as a way to help people get out of the situation they were in or poverty. Remember, there's no safety net. There's no welfare. There's no nothing like that. So this is going to happen. And the point that God is making, and the point that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount when He expands the law, is love one another as you love yourself. Do to one another as you would have them do. You don't take advantage of them. You don't exact and 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 you know uh, better yourself by by making them suffer more. It's you treat them. Jesus is specifically here. He's saying, "Love your enemies, do good to them, live without." It. He's saying, "Treat them as you would your family." You know, I mean, some of us would say, "I'm not lending my family no money, not expecting to get back." But you know, someone in your family's hurting, or you're hurting, and you're needing someone to help you in this deal. It'd be great to say to to be able to love one another in such a way that you you lend without expecting to be paid. You know, if they pay me back, fine. If not, fine. I did it unto the Lord. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that's what you must do at every single time somebody asks to borrow something, you know. I'm just saying we are to love one another in the way that we do these things. Something behind that too is you lend that money to a family member or to a dear friend and they can't pay you back. You can lose that relationship for $5 or whatever. Yeah. So my yeah. dad taught me, if you're going to give it to them, only give it to them if you can afford to give it to them. If they pay you back, they pay you back. Yeah. But you don't expect it. Sure, sure. Everybody hear that? Okay, good. It's easier to hear. Yeah. Sir? What do you do with someone that is constantly borrowing for your goodwill and never repays it? You're not expected to continue, are you? If somebody's borrowing, you said something about goodwill. Like, what do you say that again? If somebody's borrowing. If somebody keeps borrowing money or whatever from you and they never pay it back, and then two or three weeks later they're in a hardship again and they ask for more money. Right. Are you required to? I don't. It, it depends on the circumstances, but I don't think so because there is a there is a time if if somebody knows that you're going to lend money because you always lend money and you never ask for it back, they're going to damage themselves by staying in the same boat they're in, not learning the lesson they need to learn, not being responsible. You know, so in that situation, and I've had that situation in my own family and my own friends. Um, there came a time where I would sit down and say, listen, I'm going to help you. I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to work a budget out with you and I'm going to help you get this and this and this. And we're going to work out how you can get back on your feet, but I'm not giving you any more money. You know, so there is a time for that. Yes. So I was in I, I was in a Chinese restaurant one time with another with another pastor and a guy walked in and he walked up to our table and he said, man, can I can I can I have five dollars? I'm hungry. And the other pastor said, well, sit down. I'll buy you some food. He said, no, I don't eat here. <laughs> you don't get five dollars. I'm sorry. You know? wow. So, yeah. <laughs> Back what up? Yeah, you have to love people enough to not just not just enable them in their bad behavior. So if 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 it's if it's legitimately tragic circumstances, okay. But if it's just you know a, a quintessential example in a lot of people's families and a, a situation close to my own was. I, I, I need ten dollars because I need gas. Okay, here's ten dollars. I need ten more dollars because I need food. Okay, here's ten. And come to find out, they were spending it on beer every time I gave it to them. You know, so I, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, I, because that's damaging you. I wouldn't be loving you if I was doing that. 
Uh, and so let's go to the grocery store and I'll buy you some food, you know, stuff like that. There is wisdom to be used in, in those situations because sometimes when you enable things, you're harming them. You're not helping them. And what we want is to help them. We want to love them. We want to get them on their feet. Okay? All right. Four more verses. We're done. You shall not revile your God or curse a ruler of your people. NIV says the ruler of your people. I don't think that's warranted. It's a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. Yeah. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest. Yeah. And from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons, you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. So this law deals with first respect for God's sovereignty and then second respect for God's holiness. Paul actually quoted this verse, Exodus 22, 28, in Acts 23. Do you remember the situation that was going on in Acts 23 when Paul quoted this? We brought it up in the sermon. Paul just said something about, along the lines of he is going to, he's about to make a speech about the gospel and the high priest had him struck. Remember what he said to the high priest? You whitewashed wall, God is going to strike you. And when they told him it was the high priest, Paul said, I'm sorry, brothers, I didn't know he was the high priest. And he quotes this verse right here. You shall not curse a ruler of your people. So we're required to give obedience and respect to God where it's due in every area of our life. So to curse God, of course, we understand that's wrong. But to curse the authority God has set in place in this world is to question his sovereignty and his righteousness. God is in control. God sets up kings. God tears down kings. God sets up nations. God tears down nations. We are not to curse the leaders of our people, whether we're talking about the highest office or the state offices or we're not to do that. Now, make sure you understand what I'm saying here. This is, this is very... This is very integral as you see how the apostles and the disciples handled themselves with the magistrates in the New Testament. We are not to follow unjust laws and ungodly laws just because a ruler said so. We're not to do that if it defies God's law. Nor are we to hesitate to call ungodly authorities and rulers and governors and those kind of things to repent and turn to God when they establish unjust laws or when they say things that are ungodly. We are to call them to repentance. The church is to be a prophetic voice to the state, to the culture, and say, this is what God requires of you. And if you are setting up this unjust law, God will judge you for that. You need to repent and you turn. So we are to do those things. Um, we are to call the magistrates to obey God and to repudiate unjust policies and laws, but we are not to curse the leaders from spite or hatred because it impugns the name of God. We are ambassadors for Christ in this, and as his ambassadors, we represent Christ, and we represent Christ in this world. So yes, we are to represent him faithfully and say, you just passed an unjust law. God is going to hold you accountable for that. You just, you know, if they pass an ungodly law that we're all supposed to obey, we have the duty not to obey, but to obey God rather than men. But we are not to curse our rulers, our leaders, because it impugns God. And that's why even the wicked high priest who had Paul illegally slapped in his trial, Paul said, I'm sorry. By the, God has said, don't curse a ruler of your people. Anybody want to push back on that? Except for Matt? <laughs> Go ahead. So this wasn't just talking about rulers of their, like Israelite rulers. This was talking about later on when the Romans ruled over. Um, it just said a ruler of your people. And man, that thing is wild. Wow, yes, it just said in, in this particular context, yes, he's talking about the Israelite elders, the ruler of the people. And in Paul's context in Acts 23, he was talking about the high priest there. But if you extrapolate from what Paul and Peter say about the government, the Roman government, in the New Testament, they say we are to obey the laws, we are to honor Caesar. I mean, Caesar was, during Paul's day, Caesar was a maniac and an un, the most ungodly man you can imagine. Nero was a fruitcake. 
but he says we're to honor Caesar. We're to give honor to where honor is due. Does not mean obey unjust laws, obey ungodly laws. Doesn't mean to call out sin when leaders, rulers, and all those things sin or when they promote laws that encourage sin. But we're not to curse them from a heart of hatred, from a heart of spite, from a heart of, of disrespect in that way. Okay? That's hard sometimes, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, according to the next law, we got to go. But it's, it's talking about giving to God the first and the best of our harvests, of our herds, and of our children. Now remember, not all these things were given the same way. So verse 29 and 30 talk about what we might call tithing or giving. Not all these things, animals, children, were given the same way. The animals that were suitable for sacrifice were offered at the tabernacle, burnt sacrifice. So lambs and and all those things were the firstborn, spotless. If they were suitable for sacrifice, they were sacrificed. If they were unsuitable for sacrifice, like donkeys and, and, and animals that weren't suitable for sacrifice, or firstborn children, they were to be redeemed, not sacrificed. So in Exodus 13, we studied the rite of consecration of the firstborn sons. You remember that? Where they were to be consecrated to the Lord with an animal sacrifice. So an animal was substituted and sacrificed in place of the firstborn, and the firstborn was then consecrated to God by that sacrifice. And in Exodus 13, it was to show that the whole family belonged to God. So he's saying, it all give these things to me, but... Also remember, in the context, we're not talking about sacrificing our firstborn son. That would be tantamount to murder. What we're talking about is the redemption of them through an animal sacrifice. And here we're really just reminded, everything we have belongs to God. And He's given it to us as stewards. God makes it very explicit in this verse, they were not to give Him the leftovers. They were not to give Him the lame animals. They were not to give Him the things that they weren't using. God is to be offered the first and the best showing that it is God who has given all of it to us in the first place. And there's lots of application for that today, but we're not going to have time to take questions. My dad used to say, well, just because this calf has a lame foot, I'm not giving him to the church, to God, but I will raise him up and fatten him for our use. Sure. Yeah. That's good. It really came back to me what he used to do. Yeah. There was a very, in my last church, there was, so the senior pastor, I was the associate pastor, so I did all the finances, I did all the administration, I did all that kind of stuff. And so there was a very, very rich man in our church and then another older man who was best friends with him. And we were, the pastor preached a message on tithing, you know, and he was talking about 10% and talking about all that kind of stuff. And long story short, the, the rich guy, the, the older guy told me this later. I wasn't privy to the conversation. The, the rich guy told his best friend, this older guy, he said, do you know how much money I would have to give in order to give 10%? <laughs> and the older guy said, well, I'm going to pray you don't have that problem next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, last one. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Israelites were not to defile themselves by eating animals that were not killed and prepared the proper way. One writer puts it like this. You are not to eat roadkill. Now, that's easy for us to understand. But make sure that you see that this is not a law to protect their health or to protect their hygiene. It's a matter of purity before the Lord. You will be consecrated before me. So a carcass of a dead animal in a field, ceremonial, ceremonial unclean, cannot touch it, let alone eat it. It would defile the one who hates it. Now all of these laws, very quickly, and all of these laws have a common theme. God wants us to be like Him. He said, I am compassionate. That's why you will be compassionate. He wants us to be like Him so that our whole life reflects His character as the image of God. We're to show His glory with our bodies, the way we care for the needy, the way we handle our money, in the big things, and the little things, in everything. We're called to holiness 
to glorify God. And when you think about all the things just tonight that we've talked about in this passage, not let alone the one that came before and the whole chapter that comes after it, when you, when you take all of that into consideration, that's a pretty daunting task. How, how are we supposed to be expected to adequately live these principles out? Shows we can't live out. Huh? It points us to Jesus. No, yeah, the right answer in church is always Jesus. Right. <laughs> it's by the Spirit that we are able to walk in these things. It's by the Spirit and only by the Spirit. I hope you've seen, there have been times in my life where I have mistreated people. There have been times in my life where I have taken advantage of people. So according to God's law, doesn't matter what I do now, I should be condemned. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're going to talk about that Sunday morning. He redeemed us from the curse of the law and He indwelt us with His Spirit so that now we walk not, not based on the letter of the law, but according to the Spirit of the law as the Spirit guides us and grows us and sanctifies us and, and does those things. So when we break God's law, when we sin, we have the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we have a new heart that desires to walk in this way. And so it all, all the law and all the stuff, it, it, it's, it's God's character, it's God's nature, it's God's word, it's not passed away. But it is pointing us and driving us and pushing us toward the only one who kept these laws and he offers his righteousness for us. Questions, comments? All right, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gospel. God, there's been many times studying the laws in the last few chapters that seeing my own conviction, seeing my own sin, seeing my own inadequacy and my uh, just neglect of, of, the, of the commands that you have given. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to walk in the Spirit, as it says in Galatians, and that you would show us the, the true way of, of honoring you and obeying you as we seek to love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. God, we pray that you would continue to show us Jesus and that you would continue to show us the beauty of the gospel as it is placed against the backdrop of our own sin. Father, help us to walk pleasing to you because you have already made us pleasing to you in the gospel. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.